Hey there, this is Andrew Sellen, better known to you as Mr. Penn and the Ventriloquist on Gotham. And this is Mr. Scarface, and if you know what's good for you, you'll listen to Suther House Podcast. Get it? Welcome to Superhouse, your podcast for everything Batman, especially during quarantine right now. This is Ben, the man who knows too much about Batman. Uh, this is Wolfie. I was born for this moment in time, staying at home, sitting on the couch. Easy peasy. And this is Andrew, and I'm having less of an easy time. Uh, I can't go anywhere. Anyway, how's it going, everybody? <laughs> well, hopefully this will help you guys out because we have a very special guest today. Uh, to give him a big intro, in 1988, writers John Wagner and Alan Grant and artist Norm Breyfogle create a character known as the Ventriloquist, who is this kind of a meek man who channels aggression into a dummy named Scarface, who supposedly called the shots. Now, for bringing that character to life in live action, it's one thing to cast an actor to play the Ventriloquist and voice Scarface a little bit later in you know post-production. It's another thing entirely to cast an actor to play the Ventriloquist, voice Scarface, and do the actual ventriloquism on camera. But we have somebody who did it, cementing himself in Batman history as the first, and as of this recording, the only live-action actor to play the ventriloquist, and that is our guest today, Andrew Sellin. Hello, hello. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, man. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. All right, so before right. we get to uh, Gotham, the, the the main show, I guess you could say, could you tell us a little bit about your acting career and your previous roles? I'm most interested in uh, Waiter in the Smurfs in 2011. There's <laughs> 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 not a whole lot to say about that role. Um, what were the Smurfs like on set? It was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> It really was. I mean, there were no actual Smurfs on set. Oh um, man! <laughs> there were, however, there were, however, four cats, all representing the one, you know, evil hench cat. Uh, oh wow! Well. So, yeah. Oh well, I could, I could. Let me just put it this way: we, we were, we were at the Russian Tea Room, which is a very fancy place on Fifty Seventh Street in Manhattan. They had rented out the entire building from the Russian Tea Room for the entire day and night. And really, it was only like a one-minute scene, probably, in the restaurant. Okay. Uh, it's where uh, Tim Gunn and Sofia Vergara are trying to get the secret formula of youth out of, um, out of the villain, or villain and his cat. And so they take him to the Russian Tea Room, fancy all this sort of stuff, and the cat is supposed to you know, do certain things according to the script. Well, cats being cats, they do as they please, despite what the cat <laughs> trainer begged for it to do. <laughs> so we were actually there for 12 and a half hours shooting that scene. Wow. wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but Raja Gosnell was the director. He was fantastic. He's such a nice man. You know you're going to be on a good shoot when you're in the makeup trailer and the director of the entire feature film pops his head and says, I loved your audition tape. We're going to have so much fun. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. Oh, that's <laughs> nice. That's awesome. And that's the tone he set. And that's really the tone of, you know, that we had. It was, it, was a, it was a long shoot because of the kitty cats. Uh, they did some very entertaining things. That could be another whole podcast. What did the cats do? <laughs> um, but I will say yes. that during, during a lot of off times, uh, I spent a lot of time chatting with Tim Gunn, who was just one of the nicest people I've ever met. That's cool. Um, so, yeah, with the cast was Hank Azaria, Sofia Regari. Everybody was lovely. And, you know, 
there was work to be done, but it was a fun thing to be doing. So I think it was a, a very, a very good experience. Well, that's good to hear. One more real quick before I hand it off. Um, Wolfie actually is a huge Red Dead Redemption fan, and you played Marshall Thurwell in that? I did, yes. Oh, did you wow, actually right. find me in the game? <laughs> I do remember the character, yes, I believe so. Yeah, in my one of the Nicholas in one of the towns huh? for me. I would never have found him. My nick, nephew Nicholas found him. <laughs> <for me>. That's <laughs> awesome. Okay, yeah, I believe it's one of the one of the characters in one of the towns that you end up doing some work for. That's awesome. Well, yeah, Heck, I yes. mean, the irony is, is you know, this was coming off of, of course, playing Mister Penn, uh, who started out in arguably in episode four hundred one as as Mister Cobblepot's accountant, and rapidly became Mister Cobblepot's right-hand man, um, <laughs> but Marshall Thurlwell, as it turned out, and you don't know this, I don't know how much you know about, I mean, how games are auditioned and stuff. When you audition yeah. for a game, it's a totally bogus script that you're auditioning with because the security has to stay so tight because there's so right. much piracy in the industry. Right. So I was auditioning for a character that ended up having nothing to do with Marshall Thurlwell except for his personality traits. Uh, and in reality, it turns out Marshall Thurwell, Thurwell was, guess what, a crooked accountant. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, well, that's kind of interesting casting. Yeah. So, nice. Especially since in real life, I'm not very good with numbers. So <laughs> irony that I keep playing uh, priests and accountants. The magic of movies, huh? <laughs> well, Cole Vallis said he keeps getting cast as high school bullies, but that guy is one of the nicest guys we've talked to. Like, at all, you know? Right. The sort of the implicit irony to the entire Gotham production. I mean, if you're an audience member and you're watching any episode of Gotham, just pick one. It wouldn't matter which one. You're watching a screen full of sociopaths. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's that's the world <laughs> of Gotham. And yet, yeah. to meet and to work with these people, it is the nicest bunch of people I have ever worked with. It was right. genuinely right. a family. And they really protected that very carefully. That's cool. That's good to hear. Yeah, I did literally in 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 the two years that I was on the show, I didn't have any encounter with anybody, a cast, crew, staff, directors, anybody who was anything less than gracious and very friendly. That's cool. awesome. awesome. Yeah, from from the um what we've seen of like behind the scenes stuff, it does look like that's you know, that's always the vibe that I've gotten was the the idea that there was a the family there, there was something special behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. I think Danny and Bruno were very, and John Stevens, uh, you know, they were all very careful at at maintaining that family vibe, you know, and there were instances if somebody wasn't as happy on set or something like that, then you wouldn't see a lot more of that character. They really wanted a group of people who would continue to mesh well together. I mean, originally, I was only going to be in one episode. Right. Uh, wow. And it just, bless their hearts, it just kept snowballing. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, let's see, a few years ago uh, on this podcast, we were sort of brainstorming who would be good for certain roles, and at the time, this was like many years ago, I was just like, you know, John Lithgow would be awesome as the ventriloquist, and funny enough, when looking at your website, I was like, oh my god, there's John Lithgow and Andrew Sellen in the same shot, What the, what is this? So, it looked like there was a production for the New York Library? New York Public Library, yes, mm. uh, and it was just a one-off, uh, a comic skit, um, 
the New York Public Library, which is such a such a fantastic institution, they were doing they do an annual what they call the Lions Gala because of course the two lions in front of the library building on Forty Second Street are kind of the mm. big symbols and mascots for the library. So they do a Lions Gala, which is for donors, and it's always a very very um, you know big celebrity event. And so that year, John Lithgow was the host. And they thought, well, we need to do something fun as an opener. What are we going to do that's going to surprise the audience that, you know, they haven't seen in the previous galas? And so the writers uh, came up with this wonderful idea of John going into the stacks and finding a librarian's help desk and just saying, I need something really funny to open the show with, help. (laughs) And I was the librarian in question. And so we have this wonderful scene, which is available. You can watch the whole scene on my website. Um, so that was done as a, as a, as a pre-recorded thing. And then when he leaves the scene with me and he finishes and he runs out the door, he literally ran down there and then he went on stage and went live. Oh, nice. Uh, but he was such a nice man to work with. He's such a lovely, lovely man, you know? And it was funny because he was in the middle. I forget what else he was shooting. It was very, very tight schedule. So he literally showed up just in time for a quick rehearsal. He was already in his tux for the evening because it was that tight. Uh, and so we just went for it and had a lot of fun doing it. We found out in between takes that we both went to Harvard, um, He was in Adam's cool. house. I was in Leverett house. So we weren't in the same houses, but uh, <laughs> he's really, he's a delightful man and, and heaven knows he's wonderful as a performer. Oh yeah, absolutely. Nice. That's great to hear great. too. And I agree with you that actually, John, <laughs> not that I want to not cast myself because, hey, this is business, um, <laughs> but John, John would have been a, a wonderful ventriloquist, I'm sure. He would, but I don't think he, uh, to my knowledge, I don't think he is a real-life ventriloquist. So you do still have that edge over him. <laughs> I yeah. think exactly right, and I'm holding on to that. So. <laughs> <laughs> Your voice is perfect, I think, for the for the character. There's, in, I couldn't see it any other way. Thank in you. Current I mean, times, you know, it's and it's a weird thing when, because let's face it, it was he started in a comic, so there was no audio to go with it. So what should he sound mm-hmm. like? Mm-hmm. And so that right, was kind right. of up up to me to decide, yeah. you know, when I just I, you know, the one thing I did get was the 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 first appearance, the, the comic in which he first appeared, which I got off eBay. Nice. And I read through that and I was like, OK, there really is a lot of rage in here. And I thought, well, he he's he's so much modeled on the classic Hollywood gangsters. So I went mm-hmm. in that direction and I tried to come up with something that was very angry, very guttural. Uh, and very much sort of classic Hollywood gangster speak. And then cool. when we got uh, into working with with Ken, the director, uh, who is just terrific, and we, we share the same dark sense of humor, which is perfect for Gotham. Uh, <laughs> and he was like, no, I want him even angrier, even deeper, even more guttural. So we, he ended up being, you know, he's a, cool. he's a pretty tough character. Cool. Were you a uh, fan of the comics or Batman and uh, Batman himself before auditioning for Gotham? Yeah, here's the irony. <laughs> I always feel a little shamefaced admitting this. Um, <laughs> when when I was growing up in in the suburbs of Boston, um, my mother did not allow superhero comics in the house. Wow. Yeah, she thought they were too Interesting. violent. Interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So the, I had no frame of reference at all 
for that or the show Gotham. It's just like, well, no, I never really saw any of the Batman stuff as a kid growing up. I was allowed the Archie comics and the Disney <laughs> comics. <laughs> Ironically, I was allowed to watch as much as I wanted of the old Warner Brothers cartoons. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which, yeah. if you think about it, are incredibly violent. Yes. They are really yeah. violent, looking back <laughs> on those, yeah. Yeah. So sort of a, sort of a little double standard there. I could watch as as much violence on uh, with Bugs Bunny and Elmer Fudd and and everybody else as I wanted, yeah. but no Batman, no Superman, none of that. Right. Wow. Yeah. So I really came to it clean when I got the when my agent got me the audition. I came to it starting knowing nothing. Okay, that's cool. At least you you get to own the role in a, in a sense, though, don't you think? It's like mm -hmm. uh, you're the first live action person to do it. I think that's really cool. Um. What what led you to being cast on Gotham? You know, I was lucky that I happened to be the one who seemed to fit what they were thinking <laughs> in the back of their minds about Penn. I, I, you know, it's not a normal thing, but this was one of those auditions where they weren't even sure if they wanted a man or a woman or what age or anything. Okay. You know, it's it's more typical as an actor, and we talked a little bit about about typing, which is so common in in the entertainment industry, and it can be very limiting for us as actors, especially if you're a character actor. Our job is to play lots of very different people, so you know we don't want to keep necessarily being cast as the priest or the the accountant or any one thing. We want the variety, but mm -hmm. still, you you know it's it's the way the business tends to work. So it's more typical to walk into an audition room uh, at a casting office, and I would see, you know, usually a bunch of other guys in a, in, a, in a jacket and tie and glasses or whatever like me, and it'd be like, yep, okay, you could pick any one of us, and the gradations, the differences are going to be small. But in this case, they had men and women of all different ages, shapes, sizes, so it really was kind of open season on, you tell us who, who Penn is. Is this Mr. Penn? Is this Ms. Penn? Who's it going to turn out to be? Uh, so I just, you know, for research, I went and I found uh, an episode from season three. And it, it's actually the, the episode in which uh, Butch gets shot. Oh. Um, and I found that to stream for free. And so my husband and I sat there and we watched that and we were like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. <laughs> that was our first exposure <laughs> to the world of Gotham and, and right. the sheer, mm -hmm. to me, the sheer brilliance of the visuals of that show. It's Oh, yeah. Every bit as good as any feature film. That show was always gorgeous to look at. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but it also gave me the vibe of who the characters were and that it was all about making really strong choices. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, so I tucked that in the back of my head and I dressed myself up in, in who I thought Mr. Penn was. And then I walked into the audition room and saw this huge variety of people and I thought, well, it's just going to be what it's going to be. Um, and the audition itself was actually, you know, you're just on tape with an assistant usually or one of the casting directors in a room and it's, you're in there maybe three minutes, you do maybe two or three takes at most. It's very quick and there wasn't a lot. Mr. Penn doesn't say a whole lot in episode 401. So it was about, there's a couple of lines here and there and then a reaction and the reaction shot was to being threatened by the, the, the young masked Batman. Mm-hmm. So it was a few lines and a reaction shot, and that was it. And based on that, I was lucky enough to be the one who who uh, sparked their imagination. Did you bring oh, awesome. in a dummy f for your uh, audition? 
do ventriloquism during it? No, no, no. I guess he it didn't just, require it, though, did it, huh? They no, didn't, no, no, uh, they, the That wasn't the plan at the time, yeah. Not at all the oh, plan. It was right, just right. Penn. And literally, the only reason Penn existed, the only reason Mr. Penn existed at all was that the writers needed a character working for Mr. Cobblepot from whom to steal that list of the, <laughs> the licenses. That was it. That's why Penn existed. Uh, and they told my agent, well, if we like him, uh, if we like, you know, what he does on screen with the character, and if we like working with him on set, if he, you know, works for us in both of those uh, ways, we might write him into one or two more episodes. And nice. yeah, and by the end of shooting the first episode, they had already made me the offer of two more episodes. Um, awesome. Which, That's awesome. Sweet. It was yeah. amazing. It was amazing. And it just, as you know, it just kept going. Yeah, that's the that's something that uh, I think my co-hosts are going to be excited to learn is just how much of this turned out to be just a lot of serendipity and not like this major plan to have like oh we'll start this little this character for a couple of episodes and he's going to turn into ventriloquist. This is something that like through a sheer amount of creativity and coincidences or other times where they're just like oh let's not kill him off over here. Other instances where it just kind of fell into place. Yeah, and you know sometimes, and I said this to John Stevens, uh, the 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 fabulous showrunner, uh, when I when I put myself back in there and said, "Hey, now that we have two extra episodes, how about doing that ventriloquist thing?" <laughs> um, you know, I said to him, "Sometimes it's just fate. Sometimes it's staring you in the face, and mm -hmm. all the pieces come together, and you're like, this truly is on some cosmic level meant to happen." <laughs> uh, Live for that. Yeah, we all do. It's, it's so reassuring. That sentiment, I live for that. That's exactly right. All of us. It makes us feel validated. It's like, oh, it can happen. It can. Because literally, I auditioned for Penn, who was going to be in one episode, to do one very simple little task, and then didn't really need to be added or ever seen again. So that was going to be that. There was no discussion of ventriloquism ventriloquist or anything. At that point, ventriloquist, I didn't even have that skill on my resume. Because oh really? I was thinking that I was like, no. they, they probably based it on that, but I, okay, no. that's, man, that's a crazy coincidence. Then that's why I'm <laughs> saying this is that's how crazy uh, the hand of fate really was in this particular poker game. Because holy crap, man! Well, when wow. I you got to understand when I moved to Manhattan, I was like I don't know, eighteen or nineteen or something. I was a kid. I was moved here alone. I didn't know anybody. I came here with my little Danny O'Day dummy or whatever, and I was gonna do auditions and stuff like that. And I got a couple of auditions through casting directors, uh, even though I wasn't even union at that point, I was truly, you know, a green kid. And they called me in for a couple of auditions with my, with my dummy. And I learned very rapidly that what most people were looking for was a dummy that talked dirty, <laughs> which for some reason people found particularly amusing. And I'm like, um, <laughs> no, thank you, but that's just <laughs> not my scene. And yeah. so I, I kind of was like, I freaked. And I'm like, if that's what being a ventriloquist in New York City means, then I'm taking it off my resume. Mm -hmm. uh, and I took magician off my resume, too, because I went into an audition once for uh, a casting director who wanted a magician. And literally, they were like, OK, we're going to put this pill in your hand. And then without moving your hand and without putting anything else in front of it or without any camera tricks, you have to change it into another pill. And I'm like, I don't know how to tell you this, kid, but that would be what we call real magic, and it actually exists. It really was a jaw-dropping moment, and so wow. I took 
both ventriloquist and magician off my resume. And I thought, no, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna. And then it really wasn't until Mr. Penn hit the airwaves and bless him, the Gotham fans saw me as Mr. Penn and almost immediately started tweeting to me and saying, please tell me that they're planning to turn you into the ventriloquist. And I had Whoa. no idea. I didn't even know who they were talking about because I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't raised with the comics. Yeah. I had no frame of reference. Right. I literally, I went online and I found this DC Comics wiki uh, nice. for Gotham and looked up this character. And then I really had one of these, you know, fate is looking at you moments because literally guys, literally the way that character of Arnold Wesker was described was my exact age my exact oh, height and my exact weight. Holy shit. Whoa. <laughs> Destiny. I yeah. I just looked at that website and like, uh, this is a message. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so that's when I started trying to sort of interest the producers a little bit in this and whatever. And it turned out, and I've been told by other people, they had sort of toyed with bringing the ventriloquist in a couple of times earlier in the season and it just it never quite happened they had always sort of wanted to find a way um but also he is a tricky character because he has to be sort of both funny and dangerous mm -hmm. yeah you know it's just he's a surreal little combo villain there and mm -hmm. and not easy to pull off uh live perhaps even more difficult to pull off live than in a comic book right uh, yeah, completely. So I think there was a lot of internal hesitation about would this even work, right? Yeah, um, right. you know. And then the 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 wacky thing is they finally decided that they were gonna go for it, and they hadn't told me this yet, but <laughs> they were gonna go for it as of season five, and then right. make me a recurring villain like Poison Ivy over seasons six and seven, which would have been absolutely career changing. Oh mind yes. Mind. Oh, you know, um, but then Fox canceled us and then Warner Brothers pushed them back and said, no, 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 give them something. And so we got 10 episodes and they came back to me and they said, we just we don't have time to turn you into the ventriloquist. So instead, we're going to kill you off. And I'm okay. like, what? <laughs> Great. <laughs> That's not what he wanted to hear. Not at all <laughs> what I had in mind. I mean, I hadn't even known that they were planning but I had been sort of lobbying very politely. I'm a, right. I'm a quiet guy like Mr. Penn. I'm not a real pushy guy. <laughs> um, but I had been politely lobbying and saying, look, I am a ventriloquist. This just sort of all seems to work out, don't you think? Mm -hmm. uh, but then when we got the sentence of only 10 episodes, they were like, look, we have, we have to turn David into Batman in 10 episodes. Uh, we have to focus on, on that uh, and the major threat uh, that was going to be throughout season five of you know, No Man's Land. And so they decided to kill off both Tabitha and Mr. Penn. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it was, I have to say that going in and, and shooting episode 503 was one of the hardest things I've ever done. And Robin and I both had a hard time getting through that scene because um, we had a great time working together. He's an absolute joy. Mm -hmm. um, but it really was hard, and it was very, very hard saying goodbye to the cast and the crew and the producers and everybody because I had, in some small way, become a, a part of the family, and nobody wanted me to die. It was, mm -hmm. you know, we were standing there shooting one of the outdoor scenes in the in the uh, 
in the Haven. And uh, one of the main camera operators just came up to me and shook my hand. And I was like, hey, hey, Al, what's going on? He was like, I just wanted you to say, I don't think this should be happening. And I love what you're doing. And I really wish Mr. Penn was going to stick around. And oh, that's sweet. I was really moved that cast and crew, they were all like, this, this feels wrong and we're sorry, but it's, we have no choice. Um, and I totally understand why they did it. You know, they were handed a very difficult challenge of resolving what they planned to resolve over series, you know, episodes, uh, sorry, seasons five, six, and seven. You know, they right. thought they had 22 episodes times three to make all of these wonderful things happen. Yeah. So <laughs> oh, I wish there was more. Yeah. Personally, I think they did an incredible job with those episodes. Um, but then when they were filming, literally, they were almost, I think it was like the last day of filming what was supposed to be the finale. Fox gave us two more episodes. Mm -hmm. And oh, wow. you know, I had I had been, you know, long dead by then <laughs> in terms of shoot schedule. Mm -hmm. But I had a friend on the production crew uh, who sort of whispered in my ear that we just got two more episodes. And I just thought, well, time. Yep. literally, I mean, think about it. Put yourself in my shoes. I was already dead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had already <laughs> died in Robin's arms. <laughs> you know, I had a great death. I thought it was an amazing death, a really <laughs> heartbreaking death. But I thought... <laughs> Why not? And I had already been writing little scripts to myself just to make myself less depressed about how Mr. Penn might come back and not actually be dead and might still at least meet up with a dummy so that the fans could get some hint that, oh, in the future, these two are going to get together and become the ventriloquist and Scarface. But I just decided since I'm dead, I have nothing to lose. And I wrote to John Stevens uh, and I sent him a picture that I'd taken uh, back in my, in my uh, dressing room for fans. I snuck my own little dummy at the time, mm -hmm. uh, into the studio in a duffel bag and shot photos of myself with him so that I could send something out to fans on social media afterwards saying, look, I know this didn't happen, but I wanted you to know how much I appreciated your, your wanting it to happen. So instead, I sent one of those photos to John with a, one of my little uh, draft scenes, and I just said, look, this is just to say that there are so many possible ways that I could not be dead, and even if we just put me in the room with a dummy, that's a lovely gift to the fans before the series wraps up. And yeah. I got the loveliest email back from him saying, you know, thank you so much for everything you've already done. I can't make any predictions, but I will say this. It's back on the table. <laughs> and I was like, that's oh awesome. my Amazing. gosh. Yes. <laughs> and two days later, I got a call from my agent saying, I don't understand. I thought you were dead. <laughs> <It's gobbled. laughs> and i just said sit down i have to explain this to you yep <laughs> you know um i wish they hadn't shot me again but then again it was sort yeah. of a it was sort of a grazing shot as far as i'm concerned and <laughs> technically it wasn't even my head it was my wonderful stunt double uh, <laughs> you know so i still firmly believe that mr penn and mr scarface rebuilt are out there in the shadows just waiting Yes, cool. I would like to think so too. Nice. I um, <clears throat> I honestly didn't even have Ventriloquist on my radar until after um, Penn's first death in five oh three, where I thought you know season five, of course they're going to kill off you know a lot of characters, uh, and then once I found out that there was a possibility through um, your interview with uh, Gotham TV podcast, I think at the time, I was like, 
oh, now I want this to happen. Like, damn it, why did they do this? <laughs> so to then see the photos come out <laughs> later that you were coming back, was I was like, yes, it actually is happening. It's not just going to be some, like, oh, what-if scenario that, um, you know, we all would have wondered about. So thankfully... That was the amazing thing when I got the offer and, and you know, and this all had to happen. You you have to understand this had to happen fast. Yeah. Uh, because it was at the 11th hour, we got granted two more episodes. They had to come up with scripts and cast them and design them and everything. And in this case, they had to come up with a Scarface. Right. Oh, yeah. We, you yeah. know, so the props department was like, okay. <laughs> we Here do? we go. Exactly. It's going to be easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what they did was kind of amazing because they they got some. Uh, it was he's a, he's a high quality uh, you know handmade dummy, uh, but he was he was bought used from somebody in Florida. Oh wow! Uh, and Courtney Schmidt, the the head of of props, got a hold of him, and then uh, Geo on the team did this amazing sculpted face on top of. The dummy's face. So there's actually this is also kind of Gothamy creepy. So there's still another face underneath Scarface's face. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, the real oh, dummy's yeah. face is still living underneath this this sort of <laughs> clay or whatever fancy uh, high tech clay yeah, it is yeah. they use him. But it also meant that he ended up being an insanely heavy dummy, much heavier than dummies are supposed oh. to be. <laughs> so it was it was like working with a bowling ball. Wow. <laughs> Try holding up a bowling ball for eight hours one day. <laughs> yeah, sounds a little rough. <laughs> sure those I only roll strikes. <laughs> Let me tell you, the the director of photography at one point, bless his heart, on the on day two when I lifted up Mr. Scarface for the second day of shooting, literally I felt my back spasm. Oh, man. He was that heavy. And bless mm. him, our DP just... I didn't say anything. I was trying to like hide this and just like, okay, I'm just going to calm my back down. I can do this. This is the beginning of another long day of shooting. And the DP was like, he looks really heavy. And he just, <laughs> he was so nice. He just sidled up to me and didn't say it in front of anybody else. He just said, he looks really heavy. And I said, to be honest, he is. <laughs> um, and he said, I can put a light stand under him whenever we're not including his feet in the shot. Would that help? And I said, you have just saved my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. That's I mean, that's just the kind of company it was. It really was cast and crew. It was just one big to to go with the cliche. It was one big happy family. We all looked that's, out that's for that's each awesome. other. That's awesome, man. That's great. Um, backtracking a little bit, uh, I know that you you mentioned that you had been writing some scenes to sort of hint about Mr. Penn being the ventriloquist for the, the viewers uh, before, obviously before the, your actual return, because you didn't know that was on the table. Um, I recall at one point in Gotham TV podcast, you mentioned that you had even written that scene before finding out that uh, you would be shot. So I was curious what that original scene was. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I, I you know, I have to kind of just acknowledge that probably sounds super depressing. Here's this actor who's just been killed off. And what's he doing? He's back home in Yonkers and he's writing scenes that I'm not dead yet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there was literally such a strong feeling in my gut. My instincts were like, this can't be over, this can't be over. And ironically, um, Danny Cannon, uh, three of the episodes I shot were, were directed by Danny, who is just the best. He's just so awesome. And 
we were we shot he directed uh, episode 501 which was his last episode shooting Gotham which was really hard for him to do mm-hmm. uh but then we went to the table read just to listen in on on episode 502 which Danny wrote and as he was going off down the hallway you know I I gave him a hug and I thanked him I said I don't even know how to thank you for this experience uh it's you know it's changed my life and he was just so great and smiled and sort of that wonderful Danny smile and he walked off down the hall and he turned back and he said and he had this really pensive look on his face like I don't even know why I'm saying this but he was just tilted his head and he said you'll be back (laughs) and as fate would have it and he couldn't have known that those two episodes were coming as usual Danny was right Mm -hmm. um but yeah the scenes I was writing um Literally, the first one was was very much pulled from the comics. So it was working on the assumption that Mr. Penn had been apprehended for doing some of Mr. Cobblepot's dirty work. And that he ended up in a jail cell with uh, an inmate who happened to be a ventriloquist. Except, of course, he was asleep on, on the cot and the dummy had ideas of his own. Yeah, that's right out of it. That's right mm-hmm. out of the comics. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it made perfect sense because Mr. Penn would be so incredibly ill at ease in a in a prison cell. Of course. He's <laughs> just he'd be dead meat in a jail. He's just, you know. Um, so I thought there was something great about the idea that, well, if somebody as apparently harmless and almost in some ways innocent as Mr. Penn ended up in a jail cell, he'd need somebody to look out for him right and then there is this mr scarface dummy sitting there and to me it seemed like that would actually be a very logical transition and it's totally true to the comics no absolutely um i think you also mentioned as well that uh, the original idea was to turn you into ventriloquist for future seasons of hypothetical six and seven um and I think you mentioned as well in Gotham TV podcast the plan was that for um, Jessica Lucas's character Tabitha. Uh, do you, or can you say uh, what you know of those the the plans could have been for Ventriloquist or uh, I guess the Tigress? Uh, yeah, we we didn't actually specifically discuss it. Uh, we had uh, Jessica and I had a lovely chat uh, uh, shooting episode five hundred one. We got to appear together in one little scene. It was it was. Uh, me and Aaron and Jessica. And, um, you know, we, we sort of commiserated <laughs> in our in our chairs in between shots. And I was like, you know, I'm just so sorry that, you know, you're going, you're actually going before me. And this is heartbreaking. She she had just gotten married. She'd had an offer of, of something else out in Vancouver. You know, she was in a really good place to sit. She said, I'm not going to say it didn't hurt, but but at least there's a very clear path for me. Uh and she said, yeah, it would be nice to have seen where this could have gone, she said. But, you know, like the message that I got, they had a completely different arc for her all planned out, you know, 22 episodes and then beyond. And that became impossible. Look. And so they had to step back and say, we have to focus on Batman. Look. So I don't know if it was indeed Tigress or not. I'm kind of assuming yes, but... <laughs> Mm-hmm. It, was, it was not articulated. Yeah, since, since they call her that uh, earlier, I was I was assuming, but I was curious what that would have been. It does, it always did feel a little weird to end season four with the setup of Penguin versus Tabitha 
and then have it resolved as quickly as it was. Though I do know, like, you know, a lot of that did come down to having to to uh, rush things due to the the ten episode order at the time. So I completely understand behind the scenes how that came about. But I do. Um, I do want to, if we're looking at the uh, DC multiverse, go to the alternate world where maybe season uh, six or seven ha- did happen and we did get to see what those plans were. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's mm-hmm. it's great fun to speculate. And the, the great thing about um, Gotham as a production and as a, as a team of producers and writers and showrunners, they were really open. You know, sure, they had plans, mm-hmm. but they were also open to those plans changing if, a particular actor came into the the studio and and gave them something. They were like, "Oh, we want to run with this." And you know that happened. Uh, look at Kelsey Griffin, who ended up doing like twenty episodes. Yeah, uh, that's true. You, you know that happened. They and the irony is, uh, John Glazer, the costume designer, told me during my my fitting for episode four fifteen, my last episode of of season four. He just casually mentioned in in this this puckish way that John has, oh, you know you've died twice already this year. <laughs> and I said, John, what are you talking about? And he's like, the writers killed you off twice already. And he said, Kelsey too. He they killed off Kelsey a couple of times. Really? Like, I didn't know what, that. What, what? What? And they said, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But apparently the producers stepped in and said, no, we want to keep these people around. Yeah, um, that's awesome. Nice. That and the fans, you know, thank heavens for the producers and the fans. But, I mean, the writers ran with it. I, What a great writer's room Gotham had. I, They just, episode after episode, they kept giving me such fantastic stuff. Cool, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, it could, have been a, it could have been a real sort of a background, stay in the shadows, supernumerary sort of thing. And I was like, no, he's a pretty vivid character. And they latched onto what I did in episode 401, and started writing for me, which is the first time in my life I've ever been in that position. But they started cool. using a vocabulary that would be more like like me. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. they were great about really uh, going with the flow and trusting the vibe in their writing. Right. It was, it was a great team. <laughs> and yeah, who knows what they could have accomplished if, if we'd gotten season six and seven. Uh, yeah. I'm sure it would have been incredible. But I also yeah. think that what they did with the limitations was extraordinary. Right. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Absolutely. And on that note, in terms of character, Mr. Penn doesn't seem like the typical mobster type as opposed to Scarface, obviously. Was there any backstory that you invented for him in terms of how he got involved with Carmine Falcone and organized crime? Or was that left solely just to the writers themselves? Well... It's one of those actor exercises because um, just as we talked about the writers going with the flow and, and the actors not necessarily knowing is, is the next sort of part of that sentence. <laughs> you, know, you don't know what the writer's room is going to cook up for your character uh, or what the director's going to do. I mean, it was fascinating because Penn wasn't a canon character. He didn't come from the comics per se. They had free reign. So they introduced him, and then they decide, oh, we like where this is going. We're going to keep playing with him. And they kept building up his responsibilities and stuff. But in the script for 4.11, which was the half-season finale for season four, it was originally much more humorous when the sirens beat me up and tried to interrogate me and get Mr. Cobblepot's whereabouts out of me. Uh, And it was supposed to end with me still tied up but only wearing my underwear, hopping off into the sunset. 
so, you know, the, the writers realized, yes, putting Andrew in underwear is probably going to be very amusing, so why don't we do that? Um, but Danny, when we got to set, he was like, no, 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 we're not doing that. And he was like, I want this much more serious, much more dangerous. <laughs> and so then we got, you know, me being tortured by Jessica behind the curtain there. Um, and you didn't actually see Mr. Penn again after that. So suddenly I didn't even know if I was alive or dead. And I was the actor. Hmm. Jeez. Right. So, you know, wow. that, that was the sort of organic flowing way that they wrote the show and then directed the show. And it really wasn't until I got the offer for 415 that I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm alive. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> you know? And, yes. and look Same how you're coming back. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same sort of thing for, for, for season five. It was one surprise after another. But you, as an actor, you have to sort of say, okay, like when we went to episode 415, suddenly it's revealed that well, some unflattering things were revealed, like a reference to the fact that Mr. Penn smelled like fish. Mm. It's just this weird throwaway that, yeah. line. Yeah, so I had to come up with a reason for myself as to why that might happen, because actually, as, as a person, I eat very little fish. I'm uh. allergic to So fish and I don't usually get along that well. But I thought, what could this be? And so I made up this scenario that, well, I'm, I'm paid so little that I am actually, I have a tiny one room apartment over a fish store um but that that works out fine because i have a pet cat that i've named mr cobblepuss <laughs> and that nice. mr. Cobblepuss is very happy that i live over a fish store and so i can accept it and deal with it and you know but you know that's the kind of actor i am if, if it's in the script it's like oh i've just learned this and then of course in 415 we learned out that i was not just a double but a triple agent Mm -hmm. I didn't uh, see mm -hmm. that coming. Yeah. I, oh. <laughs> As an actor, but nobody told me. <laughs> um, so at the whole time. Point, yeah, at what point somebody said, I know, this is it. And not only that, we didn't get him into the underwear in 411, but we're going to get him into a baby outfit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> better. You oh, know, <laughs> so the creative minds just keep working. And when it was revealed that, holy moly, I actually had worked for Carmine Falcone before Mr. Cobblepot. I started having to say, okay, what's what's the backstory going to be here that's going to make a lick of sense? Mm -hmm. But even before the Carmine Falcone, I think your question's valid because how did Mr. Penn end up even working for Mr. Cobblepot? Yeah. He doesn't seem like a particularly crooked man. He seems like somebody who just wants to do a good job. And he's on the wrong side of the tracks. Right. <laughs> And so the, I, the scenario that I came up with, uh, and fans will make of this what they will, was that Mr. Penn had fallen in love with, with a man who had uh, led him on by making him believe that he had a, uh, a serious illness and that Mr. Penn basically kept, kept funding what were supposed to be medical treatments and all these things, and then finally a big surgery. And of course, he was being led on the whole time. Uh, and he ended up embezzling money from an employer to what he thought was save the life of this person that he loved. And then it turned out, of course, the person ran off with all the money. And so Mr. Penn found himself imprisoned for embezzlement and got sprung by Carmine Falcone, who had heard from fellow in, you know, from inmates uh, of my accounting skills and that it went from there. Wow. Which wow. is 
has no frame of reference to anything else in the world of Gotham. I've never told anyone else that. You're the first people to hear that story, but (laughs) that's the backstory (laughs) I put in my head because I had to explain for myself, how did Mr. Penn end up here? That is, uh, that is definitely amazing. I, I can totally see that. I was not expecting, I, I wasn't sure what to expect in terms of that, in terms of like, you know, maybe he owed something to Falcone or anything, but that make that does make a lot of sense in terms of uh, the character and even his eventual path into ventriloquism. I'm sure the, um, the rage or the resentment um, that he felt in having been screwed over earlier probably fed into that future persona that he would end up uh, embodying. Exactly. And also, your ideas as an actor, your backstory has to be fluid, just like what the writers do in the writer's room. So then when I found out more about myself in in, in season five, as far as the whole ventriloquism thing, I had to go back and say, okay, well, then maybe another possibility is that he was, in fact, Arnold Wesker. Mm. Right. And that all these other things still happened but that Carmine Falcone was actually getting him out of... Carmine Falcone was actually the father, and that he was actually getting him, getting his son out of jail. Oh. Um, uh. And that he witnesses uh, the, the father offing the mother uh, for infidelity, and that that causes the split that you found in the comic books for Arnold Wesker, or one mm-hmm. of the explanations for Arnold Wesker's uh, dual personality. Um, so, I mean, the thing is you, you play these little games, but you have to make choices that are going to inform the scenes that you're actually shooting. Otherwise they're worthless. Right. Is it common for, for, for actors to kind of fill in the gaps, at least for their own mental state to, to, uh, or, you know, for the performance itself? I find that interesting, actually. I never really thought about that. I, I think any good actor should be doing that. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Should be more commonplace than it is, probably, huh? I, I have to say, I, <laughs> I, I think most people do. I certainly do. It's certainly the way I, you know, I love, I've always loved stories. Yeah. You know, growing up, the Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass were my favorite books as a kid. So I'm, I love storytelling and stories. And I always have always wanted to understand why. If, if uh-huh. the character is behaving a certain way, I want to know why. Uh, and as an actor, that's a question you have to ask yourself. If you're playing Iago, why on earth does he do these horrible, horrible things? Mm-hmm. You right. know, you have to have mm-hmm. some something that you can work with. Uh, I can't imagine not having that information in your head. It may not be anything you ever share with anybody else. Right. But it's got to be in your body so that your motivations are, are coming from a real place. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, well, anyway, backtracking to four hundred one, mm-hmm. you were one of the first interrogated by a young Batman. What I was your reaction? Yeah, I was actually the first. The first, okay. I was. So it's kind yeah, of weird true, actually, because yeah. <laughs> I have all these strange little firsts. I am, I am the first person who encountered the masked man. <laughs> as well as the first person, first live action actor to actually play the ventriloquist and Scarface. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, one other thing I love, uh, Seth Boston, who wrote uh, episode 508, uh, he, a wonderful adjustment you know, that he made when he was writing the script, knowing me and who my Mr. Penn had become and that he, they had been writing for me up to that point, they didn't just call him Scarface. I always referred to him as Mr. Scarface. Oh, <laughs> 
And I, you know, that to me was great writing because it was it was our version of the ventriloquist and it has to come out of Mr. Penn, who was unfailingly polite. I never thought about that before. Yeah, he, I don't remember him calling him Mr. Scarface in the comics. That does, but that makes so much sense with Mr. Penn. Well, honestly, I think one of the reasons I landed the role in the first place was when I auditioned for 401, uh, the scene, the, the one scene that I really had any lines in uh, was the first scene that Mr. Penn appears in, which is with Harvey Bullock when Bullock is still a captain. Mm-hmm. And it's about Penguin's licenses. And... He says, Penguin guarantees these numbers. And I say, you know, Mr. Cobblepot, and he has, you know, confirmed them with the mayor and whatever, stuff like that, to just reassure him that, hey, yes, these are these are official numbers. But I just thought about who he is, and it's important that Mr. Penn doesn't say Penguin. Mm, yeah, Harvey, right. Bullock, Harvey Bullock says, Penguin guarantees these numbers. That's the first line in the scene. And... Mr. Penn's response, I took to be a correction. And so I said, Mr. Cobblepot. (laughs) And I think that made them go, he knows who this guy is. That's awesome. Right, right, right. And the irony is in that one scene where I do encounter Batman, it's the only time in the series where I say Penguin. Oh. Uh, The only time. Yeah. Because he scares the holy crap out of me. That's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. I did not think about that at all. But yeah, yep. that is so true. I forget my manners in one little moment there, and I say... <laughs> <laughs> because that character, you think Mr. Penn views the Penguin as like a crime lord name, and it's kind of disrespectful to to, to Penn? Penn thinks that's disrespectful, basically? To me, exactly. To me, this is a business. And uh-huh, I am right. there because I'm a businessman and I'm a reliable and a trustworthy businessman. And I'm not going to work for somebody named, you know, Penguin or Riddler or Joker or, <laughs> you know, That's anything so cool. else like that. It's like, no, this is a business and my boss has to have an official name. It has to be a proper businessman's name. He's Mr. Cobblepot. Right. It's, right. You know, Mr. Penn is all about respect. Uh, he's very smart. Or he wouldn't, I mean, think about it. In fact, that they almost killed me off a couple of times. And tellingly, mm-hmm. Robin never wanted to kill me off. Uh, <laughs> there were possibilities that they were going to have him kill me for running away to Haven. Mm-hmm. And uh, Robin didn't want that. And I agree. Yeah. It, right. wouldn't have, it wouldn't have jived with who we had become as a team. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I am, uh, to any listeners out there who are aspiring actors, this is how you get on a show like Gotham and become one of the first live action <laughs> actors to play a Batman villain. It's making these types of choices because I am continually fascinated in this conversation by all the different um, all the different choices that you made and the different backstories. I wasn't expecting uh, nearly, a, not anything against you, but I wasn't expecting as much, but I know that that's, that must be a part of the process that often is you know, we're cut off from as the audience because we only get to see what's uh, what's on screen. We don't get to find out the little backstories, the little character moments or the other things that went into some of those things. That's right. But as an actor, you have to walk into the room with them. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it's in training. It's what they call the given circumstances. Before mm-hmm. you walk onto a, a scene or onto a stage, what happened just before? What's going to happen just after? What right. were you doing? Did you get what you want? Are you not getting what you want? You know, all those classic actor questions have to be 
considered for every scene that you're you're preparing. Because the thing is, especially with with TV, certainly with film too, but even more so with TV, you know, programs tend to shoot very quickly. You get two or three takes for any mm -hmm. given scene and you move on because you've probably got a, a shoot list of probably, you know, it could be eight scenes in a day. It just depends. Right. Uh, so production companies look for actors who do their homework mm -hmm. cool. and who walk in there knowing who these characters are and knowing why they're saying what they're saying and making the strong choices. Uh, you know, I think that's that's our job. And it's also mm -hmm. the joy to me. It's part of the joy. It's part of the storytelling. And yes, as you've said, it's it's storytelling that maybe the audience doesn't actually even hear or see. Mm -hmm. But I think you have to feel it in the integrity of the character. You know, I think right. people, you know, I'm very I'm so lucky in so many ways for this experience. Uh, but part of that is is what the fans gave me and the validation that the fans gave for acknowledging that Mr. Penn was a very specific, very vivid character. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I was lucky to get the chance to explore that. And then the writers <laughs> were wonderful in giving me material. And then, as we all saw, the game kept changing. So it's, yep. it's, a, it's a fascinating, organic process over time in a series like that. Mm -hmm. uh, were there any characters you didn't get to interact with that you had wanted to. Yes, sure, of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, my husband and I love Morena Baccarin. She's just brilliant. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Uh, and also such a lovely soul. She and Ben are just, are just the best. Um, I would cool. love to have had some scene stuff because I think interactions between Leslie and, and <laughs> Mr. Penn could have been very dry and very witty. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that could have been a lot of fun. Uh, would have been fun to to do something with 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 Drew, uh, especially perhaps in Grundy mode. <laughs> yes, <laughs> because again the contrast would have been very very silly and very fun. Is very funny. He walked in on my fitting for episode four fifteen when they had me in the mock up of the the giant onesie baby outfit. Mm -hmm. That was a great moment because he was there for something else down the hall talking about a script or something like that. And he just walked in and there I am standing there in this mock-up of the onesie and he just completely lost it. <laughs> so somewhere out there, he took a picture with his phone. I don't know whatever happened. To somewhere out there on his phone is a picture of him and me posing in the costume shop in that zany outfit. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's others. Sure. I, I mean, I am so glad I at least got to do one episode with, with Corey. Because he again, oh yeah, yeah, such a sweet soul and such another brilliant actor. Um, and I mean, think about that. That was we were like the gay rogues gallery in episode five hundred eight. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, Corey and Robin nice. and me, and it was just like, wow, this is a superpower. <laughs> this is like the gay version charmed or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, That's awesome. But I would, so I would love to have explored more of that, and I love that some of the fan art kept exploring that, and I hope. You know, I hope some more fan art will still pop out every now and then for our characters because they're great. Mm -hmm. There are some characters that I would sort of love to have been in a scene with, um, like Cameron as the as the proto Joker or something. Yes. But then I think I maybe not mm -hmm. because he probably would have wanted to kill me. That's uh, another thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> so you know, you got to be careful who you end up in scenes with. Uh, right. Right. <laughs> right. 
Well, were there maybe, any other? Oh, sorry. Sorry, I was I was going to say maybe if it was the ventriloquist versus uh, Jeremiah Valeska, that might have been gone a little differently. That might have been fascinating. Yes, <laughs> that might have been fascinating because who knows how he would even have responded to, you know. And we we haven't yet talked about the very real possibility of between Mr. Pan and Mr. Scarface, who's in charge? Right, right. We'll get to that in a bit. Yeah. Uh, Wolfie, you had a question. Uh, yeah, I was just wondering, uh, were there any other comics you read for research during your time on Gotham? You mentioned the ventriloquist origin. That was the only one I looked at. I just okay, wanted I, I wanted a vibe. I wanted I wanted the integrity of knowing his birthplace, if you will. Mm -hmm. right. uh, but to do something on on TV or film or on stage, they're, they're different animals. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, and I well. Granted, I have large eyes and I am frequently compared to cartoon characters. I'm not actually a cartoon character. <laughs> so I had to make him real. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to look at it and just get a vibe for who these two characters were in the writer's eyes at the origin point. And, uh, and, and just sort of go from there. That for me was enough because mm -hmm. the rest, you know, that's the whole point of why did I get cast as Mr. Penn as opposed to that room full of other people? And how did I end up uh, being the, the the obvious candidate for the ventriloquist, even before they knew I was a ventriloquist? Mm -hmm. You know, you bring something into the room with you, and that's what they respond to. Um, so to me, that was enough to look at, and the rest, I, I didn't want to sort of muddy myself with, oh, there's all these interpretations, this, that, and the other. It's like, no, sure. I got the vibe of where he came from. Mm -hmm. Now let me... Mm -hmm my own absolutely okay i yeah because i was i was wondering myself about um uh, there were previous adaptations in cartoons it was george Dezunza in uh, the animated series and um homer simpson himself dan castellanata in uh, the batman i was i had been curious if you had had a chance to see them maybe even after you had uh, played the role after yes fans started sending me mm -hmm. clips and i was like <laughs> yeah. oh this is great yeah, <laughs> and then I just sat there, truly like a kid, happily watching them through, and I'm just like, "Oh, let me watch this again. This is cool." Yeah. <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> and it was also kind of validating because then to see those, I'm like, "Yes, I'm, I'm, what I did, I feel was very much cut from the same cloth. I really feel like I was, and the reviews were really good uh, for <laughs> the episode. I think overall, uh, I do feel like I captured." who the ventriloquist and, and Scarface were. Uh, 100%. I, I, yeah, my goal definitely. was to honor their origin point. Um, and I feel like, I feel good about that. I feel like I did do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I grew up with um, the the comics and that interpretation uh, in, in the cartoons. Um, I always thought it was funny, too, in one of them that Scarface was the, the Tony Montana Al Pacino Scarface and not the traditional film <laughs> Uh, yeah, to, to see it brought to live action was, was definitely special uh, for me, especially after hearing the plans and realizing, oh, that might not happen, and then seeing it brought to life. Uh, yeah, I mean, I had, like, we talked about creating Mr. Scarface a little bit before, but to be specific, Edward G. Robinson. <laughs> right. You yeah, know, no, I can that's, see that. When you come into the voice and stuff like that, I pulled a lot out of that. Mm -hmm. Oh, and it totally makes sense. Um, another sort of affect that the ventriloquist has 
in the comics is that uh, Arnold Wesker is not as good of a ventriloquist as Andrew Sullen. Uh, he often mixes <laughs> up the, the B's and the G's. Sometimes he calls him uh, Gatman uh, when he's Scarface. Uh, was there ever Weird. a plan to have... <laughs> Yeah, was there ever a plan to have Mr. Penn inherit this quirk in uh, the Nothing Shocking episode? Um, I did bring it up <laughs> when I got the script. I did write to Seth. Because uh, the, the thing you need to know about ventriloquin, ventriloquism is that um, there are certain consonants, particularly plosives like B and P, mm-hmm. uh, that are formed by closing and then opening your lips. You're closing your lips and then and it's the explosion of sound, hence the name plosive, that forms them. So as a ventriloquist, you one of the things that is difficult about training to be a ventriloquist is you have to train yourself to approximate those sounds without actually using your lips to make them. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. that's why Arnold Wesker kept stumbling and calling him Gatman in the comic because Yes, to say Batman is actually harder <laughs> for a ventriloquist uh, to do. That's so interesting. That's so, cool. Yeah, yeah. So the writers were right off the bat; they were letting you know that he was not a pro-level, you know, super slick ventriloquist. He was a he was a homemade ventriloquist mm-hmm. uh, who was still not able to, you know, get past some of the the more difficult sounds to to make as a ventriloquist. I mean, honestly. You know, I could look back at, at episode 508 now and I'd probably be very unhappy with it as a ventriloquist, but it all happened so fast. And it's, you know, once people started talking about ventriloquists with the fans and stuff in, in season four, I did go on eBay and I bought myself a new little Danny O'Day dummy so I could start practicing just in case anything ever happened. Oh, nice. <laughs> but it's not like I was doing every day. It was just a little bit here, a little bit there, you know. Um, I did find out that thankfully it is kind of like riding a bicycle and mm-hmm. having learned it as a teenager, the, the, the muscle mechanisms for forming these consonants came back pretty easily, but still the whole episode 508 happened so fast, you know, Ken really wanted me, Ken Fink, the director really wanted me to have a week to work with, with Mr. Scarface so that we would be super in sync and super comfortable <laughs> there ended up being no time. It took so long to to source the dummy, to sculpt this amazing face, and then to make this little, tiny, incredibly expensive suit. Um, right. he, I, I kid you not, his suit literally cost 10 times more than the one I was wearing. <laughs> yeah. That's not oh, an exaggeration. Jeez. That was a Man. really expensive suit, and he had two of them. Um, wow! I know he had a he had a backup suit. I love that they made a backup suit for Mr. Scarface, which is <laughs> a man of taste. Somewhere, exactly right. You know, so it's it's all of that stuff just kind of comes together, um, and it's it it happened in this case to come together so quickly that there was no time for me to work with the dummy at all. And literally, I we kept corresponding back and forth. Is it going to be possible? He well, no, he doesn't have his legs attached back in. It's, you know, it's, there, were, there was always wow. something that yeah. it wasn't possible for me to get my hands on the dummy because production time was too tight. So I literally walked onto the set for the first day of shooting. John was doing the finishing touches on his little tiny suit and I picked him up and I walked on set and we started shooting. Gotcha. So okay. I was, I was learning to work with Mr. Scarface while we were shooting. 
So could I have done it better? Sure, if I'd had more time to work. But, you know, we, we did the best we could with zero time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, you know, it was a heck of a ride. It was great fun. It was hilarious, too, because I had to, you know, I had a friend on the production team who kept telling him, no, he's a ventriloquist. He really is. And they would, right up until we were shooting, they were going into production meetings and saying, okay, we have to allow for some some time in post so that we can add Mr. Scarface voices. And finally, my friend, Shelby, she just like, no, stop it. Yeah. He's a real <laughs> ventriloquist. <laughs> you don't have to do all this. If you don't believe me, ask him to come in early before the reading, and he'll prove it. And then she texted me to say, you're going to get a call. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, I got a text very shortly from, you know, one of the ADs just saying, oh, would you mind coming in an hour early? You know, Ken would like to meet with you and talk about the ventriloquism, a little stuff like that. And so I went in early before the table read with my little, at the time, all I had was a little Danny O'Day dummy. Um, and we just riffed. We just chatted and riffed with, with Ken and the producers and some of the other staff. Uh, and I could literally see people in the room visibly relaxing when they realized, holy crap, we actually hired a ventriloquist. <laughs> <laughs> are the chances? Oh, man. Yeah. Literally, what are the chances? Yeah. You know, so crazy, so crazy great. ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally in the comics, it seemed as if Scarface was the vessel for the ventriloquist aggression. But in the origin story, especially the one that... Um, that uh, you read for research, it's kind of heavily implied that Scarface has always been his own entity, that he even existed before Arnold even found him. And the ventriloquist is just kind of a vessel to do his bidding. Um, so from your perspective, who pulls the strings, the ventriloquist or Scarface? I have to say the answer is we should never know the answer. <laughs> and I'm not trying to that's be a good coy. I think mm-hmm. that's I think that's what the original writers would have wanted too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's part of what is so fascinating. Uh, you know, he's he's another kind of split personality. He's not the only split personality on, on Gotham, as we know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but he's a particularly unusual one. And I I really think that the magic, if you will, in that is that we can never and we should never know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good answer yeah. you know and it's and I think that's why in having to come up with a quick and dirty explanation as to why I'm alive and how I met this dummy you know because truly they, they gave me such a gift in episode 508 they could have just done something like I suggested and have me wake up in a hospital bed and there was a dummy nearby or, you know it could have been anything mm-hmm. you know and instead I got this fully formed episode where I walk through the door and I'm already working for somebody else and mm-hmm. the somebody else is Mr. Scarface and there's clearly an established relationship there between the two of them. Um, so yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. And I, I, I think it would spoil some of the fun. Like, uh, you know, Corey had a line to just say, look, the guy's crazy after he shoots me, all oh, the guy's crazy. stuff like, he's, you know, and he dismisses because he, and I think it's perfect irony that he, being a split personality, immediately assumes that, oh, he's just another split personality. <laughs> There's not room in this town for two of us that, that yeah. Mr. Cobblepot likes, so one of us has to go. You know, there's <laughs> clearly some jealousy going on there. Um, 
But I think the reality is much more interesting if we keep that door open. And so Seth very, very cleverly has me explain that Mr. Penn crawls out of the, wakes up in the morgue, crawls out of the morgue, and crawls into what turns out to be an abandoned magic store, mm-hmm. <laughs> a magic shop. So that at least that word magic gets in there. And, you know, when I was in college, when I was uh, an undergrad at Harvard, I actually, I, having been a magician, I actually managed a magic store selling magic equipment oh, in Boston. Man, sweet. Oh. I know. I've had a strange life. Uh, <laughs> but a magic store, when you walk into them, they're full of crazy, mysterious things. And in the hands of a, a good magician, they do the seemingly impossible. And maybe there is magic. That's what it's all about, is that believing. And I think it's much more powerful if we stay open to the possibility that he's not just a split personality, that there is some possible sentient entity. Mm-hmm. And then maybe that entity migrates from him to Sokka or to whoever he happens to form a psychic right. link with. Mm-hmm. Interesting. That's awesome. That is cool. I love that. So Ventriloquist is, is he's obviously not the same level as the, the Riddler or the Joker or something like that, but he has been in the comics for a while now, and I'm, sure, I'm assuming there's been... His, every DC character, I think, has its own swath of fans, so I was wondering if you have you met like in crazy ventriloquist fans like oh that's my favorite character of all time you did such an awesome job like what's the fan response been uh, as far as that's concerned? Um, I think the fan response to Mr. Penn is one of the reasons it happened. <laughs> For uh, sure, <laughs> quite quite literally, I think it is uh, because the fans really took to Mr. Penn almost immediately. You know, I I. Like, as an actor, I don't tend to read reviews, but in this case, I really wanted to see if fans were picking up a vibe from Mr. Penn because that was going to determine whether I might come back or not. Right. Mm. You know, and I saw a couple <laughs> of people, I saw a couple of people online kind of write Mr. Penn off and saying, I, I, he's just a functionary. I, he's not going anywhere. And I just thought, <laughs> oh, you're so wrong. <laughs> and happily, I didn't have later. to say that because other fans said it for me. And they were like, mm-hmm, no, no, right. no, there's something going on here. I really like this guy. Mm-hmm. And I cool. I credit the fans a lot with seeing the possibilities. Mm-hmm. You know, they saw me as the ventriloquist before I even knew the ventriloquist existed. Right. You know, because they had the history. They had the knowledge that I, I lacked. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and together, I think we all made that happen. Yeah. And that's, that's mm-hmm. what makes it an incredible story. Both uh, the yeah. perfect pairing of the fan passion with your talents just happened to have lined in a show that allowed for it. And uh, I think we're all, we're all the better for it. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of sorry that, I mean, obviously I'm sorry Gotham got canceled, but um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry that it happened when it did too, because I would so love to do a lot of the, the fan conventions and meet fans. I've had such a good time uh, chatting, you know, online with, with fans on, on Instagram, et cetera. They've mm-hmm. been so nice, so sweet, so generous. I've received so much, you know, uh, digital fan art and stuff like that, that it, it just blows me away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the level of talent we've got out there. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> quite, quite seriously, there are some astonishing talents. And it's like, wait a minute, none of you are artists for full time? Yeah. You're just <laughs> doing this and you're this good? It's just, it's Gotham Drew... A very special fan base of 
some pretty remarkable people. Absolutely. So, yeah, I yeah. hope someday to still meet more of them, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because the ones I have met have, have just been terrific. That's great. Cool. That's awesome. After, you know, to, the final question is, you know, post-Gotham, I saw that uh, you were doing Shakespeare um, in uh, doing, I think, at Hamlet at one point, and then you were going to be playing Friar Lawrence and Romeo and Juliet, but unfortunately, due to the current pandemic and to current times, that got postponed. Um, is there a way that fans or listeners of this podcast can help support the theater or artists like you during this time or any causes you'd like to promote? Yeah, there there are, and thank you so much for asking. That's that's really lovely uh, because uh, so many performers, not just Broadway, regional theaters, every every you know at all levels and on all areas of of not just this country but the world. But to speak specifically about this country, so many people are are out of work who thought that they had work. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, right. and it's not like a, a a corporate business where, okay, whenever this pandemic is over, you're going to go back to the office. Some people have shows to go back to. Most of us don't. Right. And some people are losing their, not just their income, but also their eligibility for insurance weeks. Uh, and that's really crucial. Really, really crucial. So thank you so much for asking. One worthy cause in the middle of this pandemic is one that focuses most specifically on the healthcare workers in New York and in getting them the masks and shields and gowns and protection that they need to take care of the rest of us. Robin Lloyd Taylor, also known as Mr. Cobblepot and the Penguin, uh, he has some close friends who've put together a program called Shields for Heroes. They have an Instagram uh, account that you can you can follow, and you can also donate to them on Venmo, Shields for Heroes. So that would be a great help because we need our healthcare workers healthy so they can look after the rest of us. Uh, again, look on my Instagram or on, or on the, the Superhouse one. Uh, those would certainly be wonderful people to donate to. And in terms of actors specifically, there is a, a wonderful organization that's been around for a very long time helping actors called the Actors Fund. Rosie O'Donnell recently did a huge fundraiser for them. Uh, but you can't give enough to the Actors Fund because there's always actors who are struggling to to make ends meet and to get health insurance. And uh, as far as the theater company I've been working with, yes, they're called Shakespeare at the ampersand symbol, but the website is just shakespeare-at.org. Wonderful group. Um, I did uh, Polonius and Hamlet for them last year, and this is kind of funny because just in the way things t turned out with timing, mm -hmm. there was there was a night where I was on stage being stabbed to death by Hamlet and uh, about an earlier I had been shot to death on Gotham on TV. <laughs> <laughs> you it's know, life just sends you some weird stuff sometimes. Um, was, but, that, was that shot the first time or the second time? Good question. <laughs> I'd have to go back and look. I don't remember which shot it was. Lost count. But it was kind of entertaining. I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm invincible. I, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Shakespeare at Hamlet was our first production. Wonderful, wonderful production. Uh, and we've got a terrific, terrific cast for Romeo and Juliet. Uh, there is a small hope that we'll make it happen uh, in June still, but I, I don't know that that's possible. If not, then we will try to do it a year from now, next spring. 
but being a young company and having been hit so hard by this sudden cancellation, anything that people would care to send to Shakespeare at would be greatly appreciated. Cool. Great. Awesome. Uh, yeah, we have been using the uh, podcast to help promote causes to help other people during this time. So um, that's uh, it's great that um, you have a few that will definitely continue to promote uh, when this episode gets released. Wonderful. Thank you so much for doing that. Yep. Uh, thank and you thank for you for coming on. For yeah, thank you for coming yeah, on. Thank and, you. Uh, oh, please. My pleasure. Have been fantastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome, man. Well, so, thank you. It's been a real treat. And let's, that's the thing. In the land of Gotham, it's like the more you think about it, it's like, oh, yeah, and then this happened. There's always more. <laughs> I, uh, I would like to think in Gotham continuity that uh, if Scarface does have magic, he reassembled himself and patched up Mr. Penn, and they are returning to menace Gotham once again, especially against the, uh, the new Batman now that uh, after the finale he has debuted. I'm so, still waiting for that uh-huh. invite because I'm still... <laughs> quite convinced that Mr. Penn and Mr. Scarface are lurking in the shadows just waiting for that invite. I really hope that we do resurface somewhere in the DC multiverse because, oh man, the potential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, no, I I hope so too. Thanks again, Ben, for setting up this interview, man. It was just fucking awesome. Um, Again, in times past, I was the one setting them up, but it's cool to have... um, you know, you bring in on people as well, and uh, yeah, it was a fucking great interview, man. Fucking really great. Yeah, no, I've always I've <laughs> wanted to uh, I've wanted to talk to him ever since I heard him on the Gotham TV podcast, and I had first heard about uh, the ventriloquist, and I was like, oh man, it's not gonna happen. And the fact that it did happen, and you know, flash forward a year later, and to have him on here and to be able to talk to him myself and ask my own questions was definitely uh, definitely a treat. So, um, thank you again for. Uh, coming on to the podcast Andrew Sellen and uh, in terms of wrapping things up we can be found on Instagram at superhousepod as well as Twitter for superhousepod uh, also in addition to the causes that Andrew Sellen talked about um, we are still uh, asking people for uh, to look at the GoFundMe for Amanda Smith she was the PA who was caught and paralyzed uh, from the accident on the set of Batwoman uh, that is GoFundMe.com slash f slash amanda hyphen smith hyphen rehabilitation hyphen fund um so you can go to the gofundme there as well as uh they seem to be good through april but um we don't know how the pandemic will affect them but the cat cafe lounge is still accepting uh donations to help them out uh, for rescuing animals and stray pets and that can be found at their website catcafelounge.com Great. And uh, yeah, just check out patreon.com slash superhousepodcast. And we and please join the $1 tier, which is known as the Shasta Army. On there, I'm Thunderwolf Drew on Twitter and Instagram. Follow us there. Ben curates and manages, for the most part, the Superhouse Pod page on Instagram. And uh, Wolfie. I'm Wolfie, and you can find me on Facebook. At, uh, I got a group there called the Overly Critical Hyperanalytical Movie Club. Come join us, talk about movies, as well as on Instagram. I'm Wolfie, C-R-U-Z-Z, and I run another meme page called the Sentient Meme Generator. Check that out if you like memes. And that's <laughs> all I got. <laughs> May Mays. Oh, I forgot one last thing for me, I think. Uh, please open up your phone. Do the uh, Go to the voice recorder app. 
I'm sure you have it if you have an Android or an iPhone, and record something like, I fucking love Superhouse, or you're now listening to Superhouse, or something like that, <laughs> and then share that to superhousepodcast at gmail.com, and you too can be on the podcast. And I think that's going to do it. Um, yeah, signing off. Listening to the Geekscape Network. 